Hello, and welcome to Significant Bits, Episode 1. I'm your host, Josh Bleeker Snyder, and I am also your guest, Josh Bleeker Snyder. I promised you the first episode by the end of the year, and unfortunately, due to some standard winter respiratory illnesses, it's just me, but I want to make good of my promise. I should mention my plan for a release schedule. It's going to be whenever I feel like it, probably sometime between weekly and monthly, depending on how things go. In general, I plan to open with an icebreaker with the guests, which is to ask them to tell an embarrassing story about a bug they wrote, um, and I will not spare myself. So here we are with an embarrassing bug that I wrote. I was working at Tailscale, which is a peer-to-peer VPN, and I was working on the client code. Everything I'm talking about is open source, by the way, so I'm not revealing any trade secrets. The VPN client would occasionally get updates from the central server about what other clients existed, how to talk to them, whether I was allowed to talk to them, and so on. In response to these messages, the client would update its wireguard connections appropriately, but this was a pretty expensive thing to do, tearing down and adjusting the wireguard connections. So what we decided to do was to have a hash of the important characteristics of the wireguard connections and say, hey, if the central server didn't change anything important about these wireguard connections, maybe it changed some other metadata that you needed to know about, don't touch the wireguard connections. Unfortunately, this involved hashing a sort of arbitrary complex Go struct that contained maps and slices and all sorts of other data. And we looked around in the ecosystem to see if we could find a deep hash utility that would provide this, similarly to reflect.deep equal in the Go standard library, and didn't find anything suitable, so we rolled our own. This worked fine for a while, but the simple implementation ended up being a performance bottleneck. So I set about optimizing it, which is in general one of my favorite jobs. And I carefully went through, benchmarked, profiled, and found and eliminated classes of allocations, including some relatively complicated things like changing the standard library's reflect package to provide new APIs in order to be able to iterate over maps without allocating for every single map entry. And at the end of all of this, I had driven the number of allocations really close to zero, including by reusing a bunch of buffers in careful ways. And I got greedy and I kept going. We were well past a point at which incremental improvements mattered, but I was getting that number to zero. Well, it was never actually going to go to zero, but I wanted to be as close to zero as possible. And one of the final steps of the deep hash, which returned a string for convenience purposes, was to take the output of the SHA-256 and turn it into hex bytes, A7, BF, whatever. And instead of allocating a buffer, of a fixed known very small size to hold a pretty small hex string. I said, you know what? I have this buffer that I already have this SHA output in, and it fits the hex output as well, so I will just write the hex in place. Which is a great idea, aside from the fact that when you do this, it obviously clobbers the data on a byte-by-byte basis. So it took in the first byte, and it wrote it out as two hex bytes. Then it took in the second byte, which was fully determined by the first, and wrote that out, and so on. The consequence of which was that I took this very strong, well-tested hash algorithm and reduced it to 8 bits. The only possible thing that mattered was the first byte of output, and 8 bits is not really enough for a hash function. We released this code, and we started getting complaints that, very rarely, updates that changed in the control server didn't make their way down to the client. We managed to reproduce it, and we found this thing that couldn't possibly be true was true. 
inputs which obviously hashed to a different output were in fact hashing to the same output. And the most embarrassing thing about all of this is that this is the easiest bug in the world to catch with tests. Like if I had written a single test that just looped from zero to a thousand and made sure that we got different hash outputs for the first thousand integers, which any hash function worth its salt should do, we would have caught this immediately. And in fact, that was the test that I wrote along with the fix for this bug, which was to just back out the very clever optimization. Static check now, some years later, also includes a check for this. So you will all be spared from writing the same bug that I did. Okay, embarrassment over. I thought I might talk today about rolling hashes, um, in particular, fast CDC. So if you know all about those, you can stop the podcast now and just wander away laughing at me. Most hash functions are designed to take in some arbitrary number of bytes and then spit out a hash at the end. A rolling hash is a bit different. It's designed to calculate a hash of a fixed window, say 64 bytes, and it's designed to do it in a way that makes it cheap to, say, calculate the hash from 0 to 63, 1 to 64, 2 to 65, and so on. You can grab the hash value, stick in a single byte, and update the state, and then be able to grab the hash value again. Setting aside for the moment how you actually design one of these hash functions, what are they good for? One use is for doing substring matching, like strings.contains in the Go standard library or the in keyword in Python. If you're looking for a short needle in a long haystack, you might just check for the first character of your needle, h, every single place, and then if you find it, check for the second character, i. But if your needle is very long itself, then you might end up having to check the entire length of your needle in every single spot in your haystack and this could get really, really expensive. We can use a rolling hash instead. What we'll do is we'll take a rolling hash of the first 64 bytes of our needle, and then we'll go through character by character of our haystack, and we will calculate the rolling hash everywhere we go, and we will compare that to the rolling hash of our needle. And this gives us a cheap rejection algorithm. If the rolling hashes are different, we know that this 64 bytes of our haystack does not match the 64 bytes of our needle. We don't know where, we don't know why, but we do know they don't match. If they do match, then we can go back to checking byte by byte. Obviously the worst case scenario is where you get false positives, where you have a hash match even though the underlying content doesn't match. In an adversarial situation that might not be ideal, but for the most part this lets you write really quite fast strings.contains. And the name this goes under is the Rabin Carp substring search. But this is not the only use of rolling hashes. Another use of rolling hashes is to do what's known as content-defined chunking. Suppose that you had a bunch of files on a server, and you had a bunch of files on your local drive, and you wanted to update the ones on the server to match the ones on your local drive. That is, you wanted rsync. And suppose that on your local drive, you had open a 35 meg file containing some CSV, and you edited a single byte, and then you said, okay, rsync, go. One option that it could do, a simple thing, is to take hashes of every single file and compare them, and notice that the CSV that you changed was different, and re-upload the entire CSV. 
which will work and will be better than re-uploading everything every time, but it would be better to upload just a single byte. And in theory, if you had a good local history of everything on the server and everything uh, on your disk, so you knew exactly what was on the server and you knew exactly what was on disk, you could do some sort of diff algorithm and find exactly the minimal diff you could send over. But rsync doesn't have that leisure. It doesn't know what's on the server, and it doesn't want to bring 35 megs of CSV down to your local machine in order to diff it, in order to send up an optimal change. So what can we do that's in between? The answer is, we can do content-defined chunking. We can say, let's not think of that 35 meg CSV as a single file. Instead, let's think of it as a series of chunks. And each chunk will be, say, 2 to 4k. What we will do is we'll compare each of the chunks the same way you could compare entire files. And now, in theory, we should only have to re-upload the single chunk containing the character that I changed. So how could we do chunking? Well, one obvious way to do chunking is to do it at, say, 4k boundaries. So the first four kilobytes of the file is a chunk, the next four, and the next four, and the next four. And this would work if I edited a single character. If I edited a single character, and then we transmitted up the hashes of every 4k chunk, we would discover that one of them mismatched, and the rest were fine. But what happens if I delete a character? Then, every single 4k chunk after the deletion or the insertion will not match, which, assuming I'm not working at the beginning of the file, is still better than nothing, but it's not ideal. Instead, what we want to do is to somehow be resilient to minor changes. So rather than chunking at fixed boundaries, we want to say something about the content itself helps us define where to draw the chunks. If we could have the content tell us where to draw the chunks, and if I change something early on in the file, well, the content later hasn't changed, and so where the content tells us to draw the chunking lines later won't change, and so the chunks later won't change, and we'll be back where we were, which was only having to upload a chunk or two. And one way, you guessed, that we could do content-defined chunking is using a rolling hash function. We could go byte by byte and take this rolling hash and say, you know, given that what we want is to have chunks uh, that are, say, 4K in size on average, we will look at this hash, and if the bottom 12 bits are all zero, then we declare this a chunk spot. And this will, on average, give us chunks that are sort of roughly the right size, and it will also be resilient to insertions and deletions elsewhere, because as long as the insertion and the deletion doesn't change any of the 64 bytes that were assessed for the rolling hash as part of the content-defined chunking, then the chunk boundary will get drawn in the same place every time. And this is, in fact, what rsync does. It uses the Rabin rolling hash function, looks at the bottom bits, sees if they're all zero, and you're off to the races. And there are other programs that do this too. For example, BUP, which is a backup system, Camly Store, which does content addressable storage of files. All of these systems use content-defined chunking in order to have stable chunks to move around. Another common place where this occurs, and the setting for which we're going to get to fast CDC, is in cloud storage. Suppose that you were, say, S3 or, or Dropbox, and you had lots and lots of people storing lots and lots of files with you. A fair number of those files would be duplicates. 
and a fair amount of the content of these files would be duplicates. To take one example, consider tar files. Tar files are the concatenation of lots of other things. And so if you have distros that are, are storing tar files with you, and then the tar file gets updated based on some data change somewhere, large chunks of the tar file are going to be the same between versions. So you can probably save some space by doing content-defined chunking at the storage layer. You can say each file that comes in is going to be represented as a series of chunks, and each of these chunks are going to be content addressable based on some full hash of the full contents, and we're going to use content-defined chunking to figure out where to draw these cut lines in a way that provides maximum deduplication. And if you think about it, pretty much off the bat, you can see one of the big trade-offs is going to be your deduplication rate versus your size. For example, if you were to have your target chunk size be like, I don't know, 8 bytes, you'd get a great deduplication rate because there aren't that many 8-byte chunks lying around, and so any bit of any file is going to fit somewhere in there. However, the overhead of storing a pointer to 8 bytes is prohibitive. And in fact, I saw some research from Microsoft suggesting that if you take into account compression, an even larger chunk size is ideal, because as you get towards larger chunk sizes like 64K, you have much more opportunities for compression of any given chunk to be higher, and that outweighs the lower deduplication rate from having larger chunk sizes. But in practice, most people everywhere seem to settle on a chunk size between 2 and 4K. So far, so good. Where does fast CDC come from? Why do we even need it? One downside is that the Rabin rolling hash function and another rolling hash function, the Adler hash function, are slow. And if you are thinking at data center size, where you are doing incredible numbers of writes and updates of files, you really, really, really want your processing of any inbound file to be minimal. You want it to be blazingly fast. And I don't mean like super slow. You know, it's a handful of instructions, some shifts, some additions, some ors. But it is a handful of instructions, and the economics are there to make it a lot faster. Another downside is, if you imagine the actual chunk sizes generated by this thing, it's like an exponential decay function. So for the most part, you're going to average 4K chunks. But sometimes, due to luck, you'll have really small chunk sizes. Maybe you'll get a chunk size that's like 500 bytes. And other times, due to luck, you'll get a chunk size that is like 400K. And so you get this like very wide spread of potential chunk sizes. That's not great in the sense that if you're trying to optimize your storage layer, you might want a fairly tight band of chunk sizes. And if you're looking to reduce the number of writes and you're hoping to like make sure that any given bit that you flip somewhere doesn't impact more than 4K, having 400K chunk sizes, even if they're rare, is a bummer. It's going to impact your tail latency. So to address the speed aspect of this, there is a neat invention called the gear hash. And the gear hash is an incredibly beautifully simple hash function. It's so simple that unlike the Rabin hash function, which is some like polynomial, the gear function I can explain to you purely over audio. Here's how gear hash works. Remember, what we want is we want some hash. We are going to be given one byte at a time. And based on that byte, we're going to update our hash so that it is based purely on only the last 64 inputs. Our random state is going to be a 64-bit integer. 
and we're going to do the update as follows. First, we are going to shift left one. So the most significant bit is going to fall off into the bit bucket, and the least significant bit is going to be a zero, and everything else is going to be as it was, just shifted left. And then we're going to take our input byte, and we're going to use it to index into an array of 256 64-bit integers. So it's just a lookup. And this array of 256 64-bit integers was randomly generated and then dropped into the source code. So it's the same between different processes, different machines, it's the same everywhere. So we're going to do our lookup. We now have one of these relatively randomly distributed 64-bit integers, and then we're going to XOR it with our current state. And that's it. That's the entirety of the gear hash. Get a new byte in, shift left, look up one of these random integers, XOR it in, repeat. And you can see here that the only possible thing that could influence, say, bit 12 is the most recent 12 bytes that came into it. And little by little, the information from the 64th ago byte gets shifted left off the end of the hash. At any given moment, we have this 64 bits of hash that we can use for any purpose we like. This is really fast. It's really simple. It's really clever. However, used naively, it's not really great for content-defined chunking. Unlike with the Rabin hash, where every single input byte sort of gets mixed well throughout all of the bits of the hash state, with the gear hash, there's no mixing going on. All of your most recent bytes are there in your lowest bits, and so on. Fast CDC is a paper from 2019 or so that picks up this idea of gear hash and makes some very straightforward engineering improvements to make this far more suitable to the chunk deduplication realm. Fix number one, instead of using, say, the lowest 12 bits and seeing whether all zero, well, you can see why that's not going to work very well, right? Whether the lowest 12 bits are all zero is mostly going to depend on the most recent 12 bytes. We took what was a 64-byte window rolling hash function and turned it into a 12-byte window rolling hash function. But we really do want to incorporate the information from those previous 64 bytes. So instead of just looking at the bottom 12 bits, or as was originally done with the gear hash function, using a more complicated matching instead of just the bottom 12 bits, they said, you know what, we're going to look at bits sort of smeared throughout. We'll look at bits 2 and 7 and 13, etc. And they did some experimental testing to see which bits generated the best distribution. Um, and they ended up with this mask. Instead of just checking where your bottom 12 bits are all zero, you take this mask, you apply the mask to mask out most of the bits, and then you check whether the entirety is zero after doing this mask. Very cheap, very simple, and solves one of the problems with gear hash. The next optimization is a straightforward performance optimization that also helps with chunk size. So we talked about how we want our chunk size to be relatively stable, roughly around 4K. It can't be perfectly stable, of course, because if it was perfectly stable, we wouldn't be responsive to the content. But we want it to be roughly stable. So the next optimization is to say, look, we're just going to set a minimum chunk size, like no chunk smaller than 2K. And we're not even going to bother calculating the content within the first 2K. We're going to say, you know what, maybe there's all sorts of great matches in that first 2K. We don't care. And this means that if you have, on average, 4K chunks, on average, you're skipping half of the data, and you're never running it through your hash function at all. Pretty good idea. And the next optimization, 
again, has to do with chunk size. We noted that there was an exponential drop-off in the probability of getting a chunk size of any given power of 2, which means that sometimes you would get really, really, really large chunks. FastCDC says, okay, once we've skipped the first 2k, our target is 4k, so we're going to be picky while we're trying to get to 4k. That is, we're going to require 12 zero bits, but after we get to the 4k mark, we're going to be less picky. We're going to accept 11 zero bits, or 10 zero bits, or 9 zero bits. We're going to try to find a, a chunk location that's pretty good. Maybe it won't be as good, but at least we won't have any runaway oversized chunks. And that's pretty much it for fast CDC. And to my knowledge, that is the state of the art for content defined chunking. I'm also interested by the possibility of using GearHash in the uh, Rabin Carp substring search, which, so far as I can tell, nobody has played with. I don't know whether that's because it's a bad idea, or impossible, or it's just merely an oversight. For those of you in the Go ecosystem, there are several implementations of fast CDC out there. I should note from looking at them that none of them, as far as I can tell, actually implements fast CDC. Some of them skip the skipping, some of them skip the mask, none of them actually implements the paper as written. Another oddity is they all have weird APIs. This is a really hard thing to write a Go API for. The nice API would be to accept an io.reader, but if you accept an io reader, then you end up having to make a bunch of copies of your data. You need to read it into a buffer. If you end up having a chunk that crosses buffer boundaries, you potentially need to make copies of that buffer, particularly if you then want to return that buffer to the caller. And you can end up really rapidly making multiple copies of the data. And given that the whole point of FastCDC is to eliminate a handful of arithmetic instructions from Rabin, it's not obvious to me that this is a win. An alternative API is to just take in a byte slice. It's probably a file, and map the file, everything will be fine. And that feels wrong from a Go API perspective, but probably is fit for purpose. Uh, the other challenge there is that it's hard to write a good, clean, clear iterator in Go. But with Go 122 and 123 and the experiments with user-defined iteration, hopefully we'll have the ability for somebody to write an accurate, race-free, fast CDC implementation with a nice, clean, clear API. And that's it for the 2023 Significant Bits Episode 1. All the other episodes will be much better because I will have guests who are much smarter and clearer thinkers than me. And in the meantime, happy holidays, and thanks for listening.